The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. to the Brandon Peters Show, and uh, this is once again the next in line for the series of The Summer of 82 40. A week-by-week look at the movies released during the summer of 1982, as always, along for the journey from Forbes, it's the one, the only Scott Mendelson. Welcome back! I have missed all of you, even though when people are listening, this will only be a week earlier, but we actually had like a three week break in between. So we did a while. We did. Our future selves will hopefully have seen like, nope, by now. (laughs) (sighs) So uh, this episode, we'll be looking at July 23rd through the 25th, 1982. And Scott, funny enough, this is the first I'm going to. Pin, put a pin here. Time capsule yourself. This is the first time we've recorded one since these have started being released to the folks to hear. So now we can do your feedback. Not now we can pretend that we're taking your advice from Twitter. Right. Yeah. Oh, thank. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh, that one last. I know we've been ignoring you for weeks and weeks, but we have heard you now. And here we go. Brandon, why am I being killed off? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Killed off and uh, replaced with Aaron Newworth. There, ah, yep, that was inevitable. Got to get younger, uh, younger and less <laughs> less eighty twoer. He was like what negative twelve in nineteen eighty two, right? <laughs> there we go. No, I mean, I, how old was he? Like seven years younger than me? Yeah, he was. I think he was. Oh, no, his uh, first movie was negative Batman, four. So he, he was negative four. Okay, yeah, he was negative four. In 1982, but uh, yeah. But yeah, this has been uh, tons of fun, as always. This is a big week here. No more E.T. at number one of the box office. What the fuck? This is is one of two weeks where he won't be there, so this is like something different for once, you know? I hope it's a family-friendly blockbuster appropriate for all ages. It indeed is a family-friendly blockbuster for all ages. We'll talk about it. We'll get there. (laughs) It's the best little movie to talk about for families. Um, but first, as always, we kick off with the news of the moment. It's the news of the moment. The scene for a movie version of Twilight Zone attempted to recreate the terror and the carnage of the hell that was Vietnam. And then, as the crew watched in horror early this morning, the make-believe dissolved and actor Vic Morrow and two Vietnamese children were killed. As David Dow reports, the Twilight Zone became a nightmare. All right, so on July 19th, the first old-timers all-star classic, the American League wins 7-2 to two in Washington, D.C. So that's like retired players playing in an all-star game. Yeah, I'm going to hell for yeah. that one. 
<laughs> oh, stroke. I mean, strikeout. All right. Um, on July 19th, David S. Dodge becomes the first. Oh, I shouldn't say this like this because I was like, oh, this is some news. But I'm like, I should more change my tone here to. On July 19th, David S. Dodge becomes the first American hostage in Lebanon. There, I had to change my tone. On July 20th, Hyde Park and Regent's Park bombings. 11 British soldiers and 7 military horses killed in provisional Irish Republican Army bomb attacks during military ceremonies in London. That's, ooh, bad. It's um, a crappy week. Not good stuff going on overseas there. July 22nd, Academic Text Processing Services, or no, Academic Text Processing Service forms in Seattle. Uh, on July 23rd, the FCC approves AM stereo, stereo Radio, KTSA San Antonio, they go stereo, KJH in LA, and KFRC in San Francisco become the second and third AM stations. Maybe they're still kicking around today. I don't. I don't know. At the AM radio. Uh, got bought by Clear Channel like everyone else. Mm-hmm. On July twenty fourth, the best little whorehouse in Texas closes at the Ed or the E O'Neill New York City Theater after sixty three performances. So there was like a short little run before a certain film we're talking about comes out. Maybe that was to build some hype in the New York area because. Like Texas, we don't want anything to do with that. Ho, ho, ho. You said whores, and we were in New York here in 82, so we know all about that. We're good. On July 24th, uh, heavy rain causes a mudslide that destroys a bridge at Nagasaki, Japan, killing 299 people. This is not a good week. Jesus. This is not a good, like, this body count in this week. I, I know we were going to kill you off, Scott, but you have been saved. Sorry, oh, Aaron. Sorry, Aaron. Maybe next season. Jesus. Oh, my gosh. On July 25th, the 20th Tennis Fed Cup uh, USA beats Germany in Santa Clara, USA, 3 to nothing. July 25th, the 69th Tour de France is run won by Bernard Hinault of France. July 25th, Zhao Singh is sworn in as the 7th President of India. Okay, we have a... Thank you, Gandhi. So, yeah, dude, Scott, this is a this is a bad week. This is a bad... But there's more? Our notable death for this week, Scott, is Vic Morrow. Oh, God. Who dies during a helicopter Spoiler. crash on the filming of Twilight Zone, the movie, oh. being helmed by John Landis. This is a dark uh, moment in film history here. Was he not in jail? Excuse me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was like, I was like Vic Morrow, and it, the, where I was getting information, it just said Vic Morrow crash. I was like, oh, I was like Vic, I was like, oh hell no, that. Um, killed two kids too that were killed with him two, in that yeah. scene. Um, John Landis never the same. He was a reckless filmmaker up till here. Uh, Blues Brothers. I'm surprised people didn't die on that film, and he was just pushing the limits beyond belief and. It costs lives, and I know there's da- William Friedkin was kind of a, but his was more a let's film here when we don't have a permit type recklessness, or I punched a guy to get him to cry for real on set type thing. Not, I don't think 
freaking put anyone's lives in true danger with this filming. He may have done some stuff. Like, I mean, I'm stunned people didn't die on Sorcerer. That's like, to me, watching that, it's one of my favorite films of all time. And one of the reasons I love it is because I just can't believe no one was hurt, died, or anything. It's just insane filmmaking to the highest degree. Um, but this Twilight Zone crash is notorious. Like, I'm, I think people have forgotten about it because maybe we don't talk about that film much or anything. But There's a good short documentary about it, I think, on Shudder. Mm. They have a, a documentary series like Cursed Films or something of that nature. And it really does go into detail about how certain people that should not have been scapegoated ended up taking the fall for that one. Yeah. It's, um, it's yeah. My wife, who really didn't know the story, she was just mm-hmm. appalled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Landis just gets to finish making his film and goes on. Like, yeah, he mostly emerges unscathed. That was under your orders. Like, under, yeah. So. Yeah, that's a book. I mean, book that up and yeah, check it out for the Twilight Zone, the movie, which is an anthology. If film. you ever want to never interview Steven Spielberg again, bring that up. Bring that. Yeah, definitely bring that up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that's that's a uh, that's a sore sticking. Yeah, that's yeah. That could have, I mean, messed with, I mean, Spielberg just had E.T. and Raiders to be back in the fold after 1941, and that could have. Mm-hmm. And that's the, you know, ironically, that's the worst of the four segments of the movie. Yeah. And I mean, he goes to his dark period, which he is, I mean, we're recording in May. He recently talked about how he doesn't like Temple of Doom because such a was such a dark period in his life, and he felt it leaked all over to the film. Um. And to those people who are like, no, it's Crystal Skull. I'm like, the films are different to the filmmakers, the actors, and people than they are to you. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, just chill. Um, it's funny. I remember if you watch, like, the giant, you know, the, the copious documentaries on the Alien series box set. Um, mm-hmm. came on DVD, like, probably 15, 20 years ago. Oh, excellent documentary. The Blu-ray, uh, that Blu-ray set is one of my yeah. favorite sets and ever. It's weird because they all kind of sort of hate Aliens. They treat it as sort of like the red stepchild because it's so different from the others and because Cameron was sort of doing his own thing, regardless of what, you know, the, you know, the, the producers of the alien franchise wanted to a certain extent. Well, that and he was filming in the UK uh, yes. in their studios and they have different union rule. Like, you got to let them go to tea time, man. You, <laughs> They go home. Like they work nine to five jobs. They treat. And I think things probably changed in that industry now. But back in the day. Working on things, the UK treated movies, television, like it was a nine to five job for a lot of things, and they were. And Cameron is a "we don't leave till we fucking get this done" type guy. I don't know. That's not an exact quote, but you can tell he. I mean, he's a perfectionist. Yes. And by the, at the end of the day, he's a who cares how it was made. If the thing was good, it was good. And I just yeah. Speaking of that, I remember I have a Escape from New York Blu-ray where. Um, because he was the matte painter on that. And there they have a couple guys that worked with him on it. And like they have the fear of God in them talking about him. like, well, he just he knows what he wants. And I'm like, oh my gosh, even as a matte painter, <laughs> he was that wow. Yeah. Um now that yeah, the aliens that was yeah, definitely a I did I I don't know that I got that from that, but hmm. I just know uh <laughs> Fincher won't wouldn't come back to say anything about three. Um, but 
All good. Don't blame them. Let's get to happy things. Like, uh, well, no, fuck. Birthdays. Uh, so, Jared Padalecki, born this week. Percy Daggs III, you know him from Veronica Mars. Uh, Anna Paquin, Elizabeth Moss, Paul Wesley, and the late Brad Renfro. So, what and a week. Another down note, did you? What a week. <laughs> This was this has been a hell of a news of the moment segment. I didn't realize it as I was looking this stuff up and putting it together that I just put us in the dumps to start. <laughs> but, well, that, that does coincide with what's happening right now in our world. Oh yeah, at this time. Works. Well, when, yeah, yeah. But well, this is July for them. For us, it's May. So who only who a, knows where we're at? It's a couple days after the uh, alleged opinion revoking Roe v. Wade was leaked by to Politico. Yeah. And everyone's sort of, right now, they're sort of bracing for the inevitable. Right. And we'll see what that looks like when you listen to this in mid-Jan, in mid-July. Yeah. Be like, why are these guys so happy? Like, yeah. <laughs> so we've got the mood set, right? The challenge. This is the brother of the sword I want. Where is it? The challenge of honor. One fights to survive. <laughs> Courage. There's a lot of things in this world a man has to do that he don't like. And an American who must face his own destiny. Give me the soul. Come and get it. The Challenge. Rated R. Starts tomorrow at a theater near you. Check newspapers for theater and times. Our first film this week is The Challenge. <laughs> Directed by John Frankenheimer. Written by Richard Maxwell. This is... His debut script, he would write uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow and some TV shows later on. And John Sales wrote this coming off The Howling and Alligator, which Alligator's rad. Go see it. Uh, and I really like that one. <laughs> it's awesome, dude. Robert Forrester and that script. Oh, have it. That's such a fun movie. Um, and Ivan Moffat is uncredited on it. He wrote the movie Black Sunday. This one stars Scott Glenn, Tashiro Mifune, and Donna Kaibens. There's a special credit here, Scott. The uh, technical advisor on the film was Steve Seagal, who would later. Add, Steve Seagal? He would add an end to his name when he got in front of the camera, but he was the technical advisor on the challenge, which the challenge is about a down and out American boxer who becomes involved in a feud between two Japanese brothers. So, and this is a, um, this comes from CBS Theatrical Films. So, CBS TV tried their hand at films in the early 80s, and it was, like, short-lived. This is one of them. Um, and they would come back later because they would have that, like, Harrison Ford, Brendan Fraser movie, right, where they were like, I'm already working around the clock. They would try their hand at films <laughs> I again. That. Huh? I remember that. Yeah. Um that never became like that never stuck as a meme or a, or a gif or anything but um yeah so this is i like i'd seen the poster for this i'd never seen the movie and i was i thought it was chuck norris on the poster it's scott glenn sure uh this is 2 years off of urban cowboy and next year you'd have the right stuff um on television you may have seen this as sword of the ninja it's 10 minutes shorter and adds fades for commercials. Um, Scott, what'd you think of the challenge? I mean, 
watching a 40 year old movie starring a character actor that I've come to enjoy starring in a relatively unapologetic fish out of water, schlocky action film. I enjoyed myself. Mm -hmm. It's not, I'm not going to say it's good, but it was entertaining. It looks nice. The action scenes are interesting. Glenn is obviously very good in a leading role. Um, the action finale is appropriately over the top by 1982 standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 you get what you pay for and not right. much more than that. But again, if you want to see Scott Glenn become the last samurai, basically, then that's what you get. Yeah. It's, I mean, I enjoyed this one. I thought it was well made, well acted, well scored. It's, dips itself into B-movie territory with enough kind of prestige on top, sprinkled on top. There's an excellent 100-minute movie here. It's over two hours. That's yeah, probably it's, where its, its downfall is, is it's too long, and there's too much too much discovery type of stuff. And, like, there, you start with some big action, and then it pumps the brakes a bit. Uh, Toshiro Mifune, he is awesome here. Like, you'd think... Well, the guy's a pro. Like, you'd think he'd be like, is this like during some sort of alcoholic phase and he took this movie? But it's fine. Uh, Glenn, the role fits him because it's not like your typical good guy role. It's definitely like his bad guy characters he could play, um, but set in a kind of hero role. Uh, there's gore in this. Um, that's makes it That adds the element to make this like, better than you'd want it to than you're thinking it would be so it's got the schlockiness to it uh so good chance you know um it's got yeah frankenheimer's a solid director so it's not junk um that it could have been in other hands uh but though scott glenn did i re- i found an interview with him and he said it was was supposed to be more of a journey character adventure about a father and son relationship uh had they come from different cultures and after he signed on like they straight up wanted martial arts movie, and Toshiro Mifune said convinced he was going to quit the film, and he said, "Hey, could either not do this and then be out of work, or you can be in a movie with me, and I could be your guide through uh, wherever they shot this at uh, overseas." And he's like, "You know what? Let's do it." <laughs> and that's you know, it's 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 a lot of times actors end up taking projects for reasons like that. I remember right. you know. Elijah Wood, you know, why'd you do Flipper? Because I got paid money to swim with dolphins and hang out with Jessica Alba all summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's, fu- <laughs> it's funny, too. Um, there's the movie, I was it The Hand, that had Michael Caine in it. And they were doing a, a new blue, it's like Oliver, early Oliver Stone, I think it has Michael Caine, My, uh, Justin Beam regular on the show here was uh, doing the extras for it. He reached out to Michael Caine to do the movie and his producer said like something or his handler or said something about like Michael would, Michael, we're going to have to turn you down because Michael said he'd love to do it, but he has no real memory of that movie aside from, (laughs) aside from not, not really enjoying the film when he saw it like 30 odd some years ago and but he does have fondness for his like kitchen remodel he was able to do with the chick <laughs> or something like that like that was the Is that, that like was a running gag with him or something Where? it was it was like that was his rejection because a lot yeah. of people like 
with offshoot here talking about Blu-rays, but like a lot of people would get shit for like people when they do these movies, the collector's editions. Like you didn't get an interview with so and so. It's not for the lack of trying. Oh yeah. Like because we I'm have sure the they cla- all pick up a phone. The classic story that Justin told on here when he did. Um, he knows you're alone, and Hanks was interested. Hanks was going to do it. They had to reschedule a couple times because he got COVID. It was when he got COVID in Australia. And then uh, when he was supposed to do it, and they had a deadline to hit, he got invited to do the Biden inauguration. So, yeah. so that And they had to hit deadline, so it didn't work out. But Hanks did want to do the interview for that. So it's not it's not like they don't try, folks. But... Um, I haven't seen any like collector's editions of the challenge. I think Kilo Kino Lorber put it out on Blu-ray. Uh, but yeah, no, this is a movie I would actually watch again. I think sometime, not soon, but I would actually probably not mind. Like if I was on a streaming service or something, scroll, oh, the challenge. Yeah. You know what? Let's pop the challenge on. Or if I was doing some work, pop it on in the background. Works really good like that. Like I, I think it's, I thought I was surprised. I was like, you know what? It makes an interesting double bill with the more the recent Snake Eyes movie. Oh, does it? Uh, I've, I still haven't seen Snake Eyes. I mean, they're not identical, but there's surface level similarities. Mm. Where a, a roguish character gets involved with a quasi family feud between you know clans of sorts. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's actually I, more complicated. It's actually a surprisingly complicated story. Uh, if the action was halfway decently edited, it would have been a good movie. But yeah, I've heard that's the the biggest issue with that one. It really is. And, like it can't even be schlocky. Well, yeah. Um, with this movie, I did like the opening crux of like, hey, you need to deliver this sword. To I'm like, oh, is this going to be the whole? No, I like that part of it and him switching between trying to figure out these allegiances and stuff and having those board meeting rooms. Like, definitely, yeah. There's there's some. While they apparently went for a more martial arts based thing, like I feel they still went too prestige with it. <laughs> you know, like there's still a sense of trying to take it seriously. Whereas if this had been like some 70s exploitation kung fu cinema cheapy, probably a little more blood and guts, probably would might be a classic. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah. Um, do you take the challenge with the challenge? You cause be kidding me, of course. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. But yeah, that's, that's a challenge. Barney Springboro, Scientific Brain. Peyton Nichols, Young Degenerate. Smile! Barney had the power, but Peyton had the plans. Together, they used the power. Until one day, Barney started seeing things differently. <laughs> Wow. Scott Bale and Willie Ames in Zap, a movie that's out of this world and out of its mind. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for theaters and times. Uh, we'll move on to our next film, Zapped. Which, uh, yeah, Zapped is directed by Robert J. Rosenthal. He of such uh, prestige as Pom Pom Girls, Malibu, Malibu Beach, and uh, plenty of 70s nude comedies. So I think he his resume fits. Uh, it's written by Bruce Rubin and Robert J. Rosenthal. Uh, Bruce Rubin has um, straight up for life cred for writing Blood Rage. 
which is my Thanksgiving slasher I watch every year. Uh, there's going to be another connection to that in this episode. Just you wait. I could believe it. This is the Blood Rage episode. Uh, this stars Scott Bayo, Willie Ames. He returns to us again this summer. Heather Thomas, Felice Schachter, Scatman Crothers, Sue Ann Langdon, Roger Bowen, Robert Mandon, and Hillary Bean. A high school science nerd gains telekinetic powers after a laboratory accident and uses them for revenge upon bullies. I, what's more nerdy, uh, Scott Bayo with his science goggles and coat or a MAGA hat? You tell me. All right. This I one, am... No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I want to I preface here. Zapped is a limited release this weekend. This is not open wide here. Uh, it would open wide on September 3rd. We're in end of July. Zapped wouldn't make the list of summer of 82 at 40 had we gone to September 3rd. So Zapped is sitting here this week because I think it's worth, well, it's notable to talk about through this summer. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's an infamous picture. It's one that, you know, in the 80s and 90s when I was, you know, reading about all-time bad movies, it would it would come up a lot as one of the more less reputable high school raunch comedies. Um, I don't know if at the time it was intended to be a spoof of Carrie, but it certainly That's plays. That's the weird thing. Like, I never realized that. And I saw some comment. And I'm like, oh, and I was putting things together. Uh, I was like, wait a minute. Oh, wait, there's the insane mom. The prom goes haywire. Jane is like Nancy Allen, and Heather Thomas is like Nancy Allen here. And then, yeah. So, yeah, I would, yeah. One nice thing I will say about this picture is that it stars Felice Schechter. Is that her name? From Facts of Life. Yes. Um, as a character that is initially introduced as the friend. Mm-hmm. She's supposed to be like the nerdy girl because she wears glasses. Mm-hmm. Spoiler, sweet Jesus, she's hot in this film. <laughs> but to the film's credit, it does not spend the entire film with him lusting after the blonde cheerleader, only to realize yes. at the end that the real girl that he should have been with was there right in front of him. Yeah, he- they actually end up hooking up about halfway through the picture. Mm-hmm. And at no point are you expected to think that that Bernadette is anything less than a knockout. Right, and Bernadette is always there. Like she knows the secret right away. She yeah. helps him with it. It's not like something that she discovers. And I, yeah, I like that Scott Bayo has no interest in Heather Thomas in this movie. Yeah, like it never happens. His friend does, um, and no interest. He doesn't like get to sleep with her and then find out. Oh, I should have been with Bernadette. Not does not happen. Um, no, and I, I was surprised. Yeah, you know, to yeah, be no. That's what some better movies would do. Yeah, like a surprising thing. That's what I've, you know, because I had never seen this before this podcast. I'm, it's bad. It's as bad as you've heard. It's it's sophomoric. It's amateurish. It's not remotely funny, Mm -hmm. but it's not offensive. At least I didn't find it offensive. There is a little bit of raunch. It's an R-rated picture, Mm -hmm. but I, I guess I was expecting something like Revenge of the Nerds with superpowers, and or like shitty weird science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shitty weird. That's a good one. But Which it wasn't more weird. It science, was just, I think, it was just a mediocre rom com with a weird sci fi hook, and it's just I, I felt very indifferent the entire time. Yeah, I would have opened um, it wide this weekend though. You beat. There's no teen movies this summer. That's why probably Porky's did so well. Like, yes. granted, teens will go see a lot of different movies, but there's no like teen comedies 
there and i mean granted this movie does very well at the box office for what it, you know for the times and what it is um but yeah like i would have i would have got i would have opened here wide fuck it um sit there and it's also hitting i've noticed there's no teen movies but now we're getting into end of july beginning august and back to school time and now here come the teen movie we, we got a couple more biggies we're building up you know the notoriously bad one zapped we've got a cult one and then we've got the big one coming up in like within the next couple of weeks and yeah like i would open it wide but it is not um, it does it open wide into september third so it it starts here limited and then lets the other two movies jump over it and then comes out probably on a wave of success from them getting maybe a little more interest but uh, Bale was on TV uh, at the time. Was it Joni Loves Chachi or Charles in Charge? So he would have been a draw, like yes, m- more so than some of these other movies would have had. But you got, yeah, you got him. You have Heather Thomas, who that would have been a draw. She's the she was on the Fall Guy uh, at the time, and she was she was a pinup girl of the '80s that time has forgotten. Like she was a she was a thing. A lot of TV guest stars. Uh, very pretty. She has that cult classic Cyclone. Um, movie. Uh, but she and she disappeared. Well, probably because she disappeared. She had a massive drug problem apparently in the eighties, and she needed help and decided I don't need to be doing this shit no more. Um, but uh, Schechter mostly retired from acting after a yep. few key roles. Yep. she was a regular. I think the first two seasons, of The Facts of Life. Yeah, she came back as a guest star closer to the end of the run. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's almost all she did. Yeah, I mean, she she did very well for herself. She's happy, married. She's a was she a DJ? Is that what she? I mean, oh. I should have looked this up before coming up because I remember. She, I mean, she did go on to do you know to have a life. She worked behind the camera for a while. She has a bunch of production credits. Um, she worked as a production coordinator on Outlaw and Under SVU for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's. She's a radio anchor in college. That's what I was thinking about the DJ thing. Um, so she yeah she had a honestly looking at her her credits it's sort of a hit every page of the yearbook kind of thing yeah um i i was noting some uh like yeah yeah she yeah i i i was noticing some like crappy like lines from this movie that i'm like oh gosh this is where we get those you know living up the stair layers like the uh you know what you need a girl <laughs> uh there was a you don't go out with girls when are you gonna go to the prom uh oh this one i'm pre-rich pre-famous and pre-powerful uh hey that's the jerk that made us lose but yeah, yeah. no it's it's not you know if I, if I seem like i'm being overly nice to it it's not a good picture no honestly i was just so shocked by certain tropes that it didn't exploit and didn't mm-hmm. revel in that i was like oh, okay okay i'm being too yeah but it's not a good picture yeah. Um, it's shot mostly at the school. Mm-hmm. The actual students are extras, so there is a skewed authenticity for that sense. But it's just a movie that it's it's a nothing burger. Well, and for a teen movie, the soundtrack sucks. That too? like the blah on the nose songs that are just like all the like they had guy a guy write all the songs. It, it's it feels like from the same person, and it's like, hey, want to go out on a date? Love, 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 and stuff, and kissing and love and. I will give two that one thing I, I realize, and we're gonna go through this in the next couple of weeks with these movies. But like, are teens allowed to have like sex in movies anymore? Are there actual sex scenes, like oh, it's been a while. 
Because, like, because, I mean, I feel like we fade out or have, like, some hot kissing and it's done or something like that. But Well, there's, as you know, there's not a ton of sex scenes in mainstream movies in general. Anymore. In general, yeah, yeah. I mean, to answer your question, I think most of that occurs on prestige television. Right. Streaming. True. You know, euphoria comes to mind. No, I, I honestly, I don't watch that regularly. I don't know how explicit the sexual interactions right. actually are. Because Bayo has a sex scene in here. Speaking of which, there's another movie called Zap that came out in 2014. With Zendaya. Yeah. yeah. I think that has nothing to do with it. Yeah. But uh, this one this oh. one did get a sequel. Uh, it got a straight-to-video sequel because it was such a big seller and rental uh, thing. But uh, only Sue Ann Langdon returned, so no Bayo. Mm-hmm. No Bayo. But yeah, there's the um. Zendaya's apt. Doubles. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's it is what it is. I, I guess I was surprised by how bland it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's Scott. It's Scott Bayo. It's 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 cast away from being one of those trauma movies they were making before Toxic Avenger. Like that's yeah, really where it's at. Like because they were making these little sex comedies like uh, Stuck on You, Waitress. Like they were. Um, yeah, they were making all these movies that would have exclamation points in the title, and they'd be like these stupid sex comedies that were shot cheap. And yeah, just no. And Heather Thomas, just her character is a shithead in this movie. And I feel like there's definitely a virgin horror thing going on here. Yeah. Even though, again, to be fair, I would argue the film's relatively sex positive throughout. Right. And I, whatever I feel, the hell that means in 1982. I feel like. <laughs> I know it's 82, but I feel like there's a missed opportunity. Uh, the bully guy and Willie Ames have some nice chemistry. Like, they should have hooked up. They really should have. Like, they, I don't, that should have been the ending. Um, it had a stupid ending, by the way. I was like, oh, God. yes, it does. Can I give you a lift home? And they fly off into space. I dare you don't have to watch his app now if you were curious. Uh, he loses his powers only to be able to fly into space at the end. Like, no. Uh, but yeah. I, yep, zapped. Um, it's a it's a thing. I finally saw this one. Like I, rec- I had heard about his notoriety years and years ago. Um, Olive Films put on a Blu-ray, and I was doing their titles at the time. So I request, I like curiosity. I'm like, all right, zapped. And I was like, oh, this is, this is dull. This is meh. And I magically didn't sell that one. So I, um, <laughs> I still had it here. So I was like, all right. Uh, fucking zapped, which you can't find anywhere, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I, yes. Yeah, it's it's not non-existent. So uh, I had to slither through fruits. I had to slither through. God, that's hard to say. Scott, don't talk about murder on this episode. This is the dark episode. To get it, oh Scott, this is the this is the dark episode. Yeah, well, then keep it going. Meet Dr. Charlie Michaels. Am I the only sane person in this hospital? Meet Dr. Amos Weatherby. Am I the only sane person in this hospital? Meet Anne. She puts up with him every week on House Call. Charlie's got a great bedside manner. To me, your body is merely tissue. Well, it wasn't tissue last night. And Amos is greatly confused. You're new here, aren't you? I'm in my third month. Well, try to stay off your feet as much as possible. All right, so we'll keep it going to the television, see if anything dark was on there. This is the Nielsen Top 10 ratings for this week. Yeah, number one is MASH. Suicide is painless. Brings on many changes on (laughs) CBS. Uh, Number two, House Calls CBS. Number three, ooh, number three, Fantasy Island on ABC. Look at that jump. There you go. Uh, Number four, The Jeffersons. 
Uh, number five, Scott and I give a cheer, three cheers for Hill Street Blues on NBC. Number six, Alice on CBS. Number seven, Trapper John MD. Number eight, Love Boat ABC. Number nine, oh, 60 Minutes of CBS. We're going to have all scripted shows. All scripted shows till then. And number 10, Scott, WKRP in Cincinnati on CBS, which would be a rerun because it actually, we just went through the 40th anniversary of the airing of its final episode a few weeks back. So this would have been a rerun at number 10, which means our whole top 10 is probably in reruns. <laughs> probably have been, but it's well, in the middle of the summer, so. Yeah, what did people tune into? Ooh, again, in the 60 Minutes like head office is probably like, how are we not number one? How are <laughs> the these reruns? New. How are these reruns? Which Netflix experienced with like, well, actually, our shows are The Office and Friends, but. <laughs> Welcome to the world according to Garp, where anything can happen and usually does. I get older, losing my head many years from now. Will you still be sending me? be safe here. Will you still need me? Robin Williams Will is Garp in the world according to Garp. This is the dark episode because next movie is the world according to Garp. Directed by George Roy Hill. He of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Slaughterhouse Five, The Sting, Slapshot, and Funny Farm. Written by Steve Tessich of Breaking Away. Based on a novel by John Irving who also wrote the book the Cider House Rules, starring Robin Williams, Mary Beth Which, Hurt. if I recall, oh. is a pro-abortion picture. Oh, there we go. Tying it in. All right, this one stars Robin Williams, Mary Beth Hurt, Glenn Close, John Lithgow, Jessica Tandy, Swoozy Kurtz, Hume Cronin, Mark Soper, the star of Blood Rage. <laughs> This is the Blood Rage episode, too. Oh, it's all come together. That's not cranberry sauce. It's Mark Soper and Amanda Plummer. This movie is about a struggling young writer who finds his life and work dominated by his unfaithful wife and his radical feminist mother, whose best-selling manifesto turns her into a cultural icon. This is Robin Williams' first movie post-Popeye, and it is also the cinematic debut of Glenn Close, who plays his mother, and they're only a couple years apart. <laughs> yeah, he's got an Oscar nomination. So Glenn Close was always introduced to us as older, um, apparently. I don't know. But fuck, Scott, this movie's depressing. <laughs> it really is. Um, it's based. It was based on a very popular novel. A novel in itself was very dark and somewhat full of itself. I think the film by default is more matter of fact and sort of in a take it or leave it kind of way. But, you know, as far as, you know, it's a melodrama. Um, And in retrospect, 40 years later, it's still very handsomely staged. It looks great. Um, There's obviously a lot of production value. But I think it's of most value is just an acting treat. You know, something I've, you know, I said when he died, and I've said this for well before then, you know, for a guy that's known as one of the funniest people on the planet, Robin Williams was an exceptional dramatic actor. Yeah. The point that I think he was a better, in movies at least, dramatic actor than he was a comedic actor. And that's not to say, you know, when you look at the Robin Williams comedies, 
you know, I would certainly hold something like, uh, you know, Goodwill Hunting or the Fisher King or One Hour Photo or Insomnia over Patch Adams or even Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, toys. They're just, and that's not necessarily a criticism. I feel the same thing about Jim Carrey, who I find incredibly funny, but I don't think his films are all that spectacular. Well, Adam Sandler. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> But and this is an example. I think this was his first. It certainly was his first dramatic leading role. Right. And he's very good here. Yeah. And he looks so young. Yeah. Even though he probably was very young, because this was a couple of years after you know he was in the midst of Mark and Mindy. Mm-hmm. But it's there's a certain naivety and innocence. And I remember when Forrest Gump came out in the summer of '94. This was one of the films, along with being there and Zelig, that it was compared to. Mm-hmm. And rewatching it, I can certainly see why. There is a certain, you know, just wandering through life, occasionally interacting with history, you know, mentality to it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there, you know, it's it's specific in a way that almost feels shocking today. Um, I mean, you have a sympathetic mother character who. Rapes a dying comatose guy, right? You know, in a hospital, and yeah, the characters say, "Gosh, that's terrible," but the movie just okay, whatever, moves on. Mm-hmm. You know, the film's violence is for a film that isn't necessarily a horror film or an action film. You know, shocking violence occurs in this picture. Yeah, horrible. Violence, like it, it's painful that like, yeah. it sits in your mind. And in that sense, it's very interesting to see a picture where incidents of violence that would be defining in most movies are just one stop along the train mm-hmm. for these people. Yeah. And in some sense, that's very realistic. Life goes on. Um, you know, you know, the, the, you know, Glenn Close is very good. Robin Williams is excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Lithgow got an Oscar nomination as yes, a he did. transgender person. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not necessarily my place to say whether it was appropriate or accurate or whatever, but I will simply say it was very sympathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, the character is you know presented as is with no judgment, no scorn, no mockery. Yeah, it's yeah, it's um matter you know, of fact, it's just a slice of life. And um, Garp's only reaction to it is like, oh, okay, just to yeah acknowledge like you can see him. Pro- that, that's the thing with Williams in this movie. That's so brilliant and so just impressive is there's a lot going on that's just registering his head that we get to see. Like just a you can see a weight on him. You can see a troubled feeling. You can you can he doesn't have to speak and you understand everything he's doing in this movie. And it and it's not like it's some silent role or some like over the top stuff. It's just such a worn character. And for this early in his career to be able to pull that off is like there was no Oscar nomination for him. Like they would insane. come. <laughs> they would they would come, but this role, like, wow. Um, um Lithgow I, I, did get nominated. Um Yes, Glenn Close, John Lithgow. Well, but um, also this was a year at nineteen eighty two at the Oscars, there were multiple trans and drag performances that got nominated. Uh Dustin Hoffman for Tootsie, Julie Andrews for Victor Victoria, and Robert Preston for Victor Victoria, and of course Lithgow for the World That I did not know. Or yeah. at least I didn't put two and two together. It's a good three star picture from a time when films of this kind were slightly more par for the course. It's just a solid drama. Mm-hmm. Back when it was just, you know, a movie. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want to give it too much credit because it's such a lost art form. But it is certainly 
is compelling both because of its quality and because you know of who's in it and watching them at the beginning of their careers respectively yeah um what did lithgow done all that much before this i I think he'd done blowout um he'd been with the palma yeah uh but no he'd been he'd been around um I i think robin williams and again, not to armchair analyze here, but he obviously was a very funny guy mm-hmm. that was suffering depression or what existential, whatever. Yeah. And that, you know, he very, the whole, the cra- the clown that's crying on the inside thing was part of what made him such an engrossing dramatic actor. Uh, Awakenings, obviously Goodwill Hunting and the Fisher King. World's Greatest Dad is officially a comedy, but it's a wrenching picture. Yeah. Um, it's probably my favorite comedy of his by default. Um, it was later later remade as a kid friendly musical called Dear Evan Hansen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite Robin Williams performance, bar none, is he did a guest spot on Barry Levinson's Homicide Life on the Street as the se- in the se- second season premiere. Uh, Levinson, of course, had directed him in, in uh, Good Morning Vietnam, which I believe was his first Oscar nomination. Hmm. So this was sort of, you know, doing a favor for a low rated television show. And he played a tourist whose wife is murdered in a robbery. And he's stuck in Baltimore with his two kids trying to, you know, navigate the process. And it's a terrific performance in a terrific episode of a terrific television show. I don't think it's actually streaming anywhere, but if you Mm -hmm. could track it down, and this is not you per se, but people listening in general, this, if you want to see basically the origins of prestige TV, as we know it, homicide life on the street is absolutely it. You recommended it to me uh, back in the day, which actually I had watched an episode in one of my college classes because it was just such a well-written show. And just like we were talking about um, the evolution of like police procedural dramas and stuff like that. And, that was that was one of the important steps to my professor at the time was that one. I believe we watched the episode with uh can't remember his name. Crap. Uh was it a, one of the leads? He played that one show where he well no, no, he was the guest star for the episode and he had like it was something with keeping his son hostage or something. Oh, that's late in the game. Yeah. Uh yeah yeah, uh, Carlo Esposito was the that was one of his highlight episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that yeah. was one of the last episodes ever. Yeah, but that's the one they show. That's the one you want to show us. Um, might have been what my campus had in the VHS it's, it's library. It's it's a perfectly solid episode during a not so great season. Yeah, but I mean, I don't want. I could easily turn this podcast to an hour long talk about homicide. There we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but um, this one, um, I was looking up. Just funny, funny note here. Uh, Lithgow, he was definitely involved. Like he had been in a couple De Palma movies, Blowout and Obsession, but he was in all all that jazz. Uh, he was probably he was at this time filming uh, Twilight Zone the movie uh, when oh, this came God. out, and uh, funny he enough, he was in the good segment. <laughs> Right. Uh, there, he reprised the, the William Shatner role in the Gremlin on the Plane one. Right. Oh. Um, also, in 1983, the next year, he he stars in Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, the original rated, radio drama as Yoda. Oh, wow. I wouldn't mind listening to that. I would love to hear that. And then, of course, yeah, Terms of Endearment, Footloose. So he was in the heat of just working. Yeah, he um, was. He was. Columbia. Yeah. He was becoming John um, Lithgow. In terms uh, of endearment, was a well, I mean, it won Best Picture that next year, but it was also a huge hit, right? Um, and then Neil, yeah. So I mean, he's he's on the cusp of becoming the John Lithgow we know. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this movie you point out like uh yeah definitely Forrest Gump vibes but with like a little bit tightened like doesn't kind of let loose like a Forrest Gump of course you know people don't get murdered um and assassinated like Forrest Gump uh, or in Forrest Gump and stuff um but it's got yeah if, if you definitely like that Forrest Gump or Benjamin Button um, this would be a good comparison. Yeah, check out with um, a, in that kind. Of, there's kind of, I guess, a small genre of movies like that. Um, they could, but you definitely have the Forrest and his mother vibe thing. That that's more commanding here than it happens in Forrest Gump. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting. Little. It's a fascinating relationship between him and his mother because on mm-hmm. one hand she's weirdly controlling and 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 helicopter what we would consider today to be helicopter parenting mm-hmm. and on the other hand she's fiercely feminist she's fiercely involved with feminist issues and she's very she's sort of like on one hand like oh no you're thinking lustful thoughts on the other hand there's a scene early on where he, she basically brings him to a prostitute yeah she buys it for interviews her from like yeah. you like her is that what um so it's it's a very complex singular motion picture yeah. again from a time when movies didn't have to be all encompassing mm-hmm. and it's it's very good yeah and it's very depressing like just like oh yeah because they're in there like the one scene he finds out his wife's sleeping with the guy from blood rage okay we're talking about spoilers okay go for oh it. yeah but yeah these movies okay, are 40 yeah. years old but yeah, yeah sleeping <laughs> with the guy from blood rage and immediately drives home with his children wrecks his car into the guy from blood rage and one of the children dies and the other one loses an eye. And the other one loses, just like, yeah, Jesus. That's, that's, you know, in most movies, that would be the defining incident that, you know, about the movie or about the characters. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, everyone mourns and it's a devastating loss and it's a huge tragedy, but mm-hmm. the characters do find a way to move on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's, you know, in that sense, it, it, Kind of, I mean, again, they, they're very little in common other than that, but I don't know, uh, what dreams may come. Yeah. Which is a, that's another great, great Robin Williams dramatic performance. Yes. Um, that's a spectacular mm-hmm. piece of fantasy melodrama. I do love the scene towards the end where he meets Amanda Plummer and she's yes. been sort of built up as this like, like <laughs> mythical character and like Mr. And just kind of, you know, you see that moment happen in a lot of movies and she's af- just a afterwards. Person. Yeah. There's just a person and you have this great conversation that really turns somebody, um, you know, bad, bad movie example here, but like Jersey girl, when Affleck finally meets Will Smith, yeah. um, that those type of scenes, uh, where they meet someone oh. of importance that really flips. Like can't hardly wait when Jerry O'Connell shows up with Peter Fascinelli and they, it's like, oh my god, that it, it can go either way. It's not, yeah. A scene can have a different purpose, but that is that moment where that person shows up. And Amanda Plummer at this time probably isn't Amanda Plummer yet that we would know. And but look, going back to it, it works as almost like a hey, here's a big person. Uh, she feels she feels more famous even then than she probably was at the time, right? Because I mean, this is her first, second movie. Period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, and even, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, I knew of her, but she was never a star in any real sense. Right, right. You know, the closest thing to a breakout role was, you know, her five-minute role in Pulp Fiction. Well, yeah, five, Pulp Fiction. And then she have, uh, was it Single White Female? Was that the one she was in where she went crazy? Oh, and oh. Uh, So I Married an Axe Murderer, too. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, 
think anyway, I mean, yeah. She, oh, she no, was, she wasn't. Single White Female was not. She's a character up. actress. She's in The Fisher King, too. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, um, anyway, but yeah, so it, it was, I would, not knowing that she was in this, I was happy to see her. Yeah, um, definitely. And she had a Tales from the Crypt episode as well that I covered mm-hmm. back in October on the show. Um, yeah, but, oh, and they also, this this movie to note had some cash because they got a Beatles song that. I noticed that played the as the beam when, when you're 64 or whatever yeah. that song's called. When I'm 64. I will not be playing in that because I don't want my episode scrubbed. <laughs> so you won't find that song in this episode if they play it in the trailer well i'm just not it's not gonna happen here all right now here's casey Kaso. thank you charlie and hello again everybody welcome to america's top 10 let's turn right to the action on the billboard pop singles chart and take a look at the 10 biggest hits this week speaking of music we move on to the casey case of top 40 the top 10 we have a new number one this week at number 10 Ario Speedwagon has entered here with Keep the Fire Burning. And number nine, staying at number nine, Only the Lonely by The Motels. Staying at number eight, Tainted Love by Soft Cell. And falling from number one to number seven. Big drop here. Don't You Want Me by The Human League. That has Apparently dropped. they didn't anymore. No, did not want you, baby. By the way, Scott, uh, yes. that music video does not fit with the song it's really weird um huh. i've recorded that episode i believe that episode is probably aired already just was on number six abracadabra from the steve miller band it's jumping up from number 11 to number six uh staying hold at number five let it whip by the daz band number four hold me by fleetwood mac this is like a non-stevie nicks fleetwood mac at this time uh, number three hurt so good by john cougar not quite earning the melon camp yet. Um, number two, Rosanna by Toto, and uh, number four or number not number number one. We have a new number one, Scott. I'm listening. It's rising up. Back on the street. <laughs> Survivors, Eye of the Tiger, like Rocky before it, has taken number one. It rose from the ranks. It got there. And it's, it's number one, which, fun story, Scott. Okay. Did you know Nope. that Sylvester Stallone for Rocky Three wanted Queens Another One Bites the Dust? Huh. Queens said no. So he he contacted Survivor, asked him to write a song for the film. We're that better makes for it. sense. We're, we're better for it. Yeah. I mean, jokes aside, I mean, that's... I, I never really put the connection between those two songs, but yeah, there's a certain similarity. And Survivor, if you take off Olivia Newton-John's uh, physical, which is a holdover single from 1981, Survivor, Eye of the Tiger is the biggest song of the year huh. on the charts. But Olivia Newton physical is the biggest song of the year because it held over strong from 1980. It must have dropped in like December 1981 or something and just rocketed across the land. But... Yeah, Survivor taking number one and no prisoners. That would be Survivor's signature tune and the song of Rocky Three, which we have talked about every week because of the box office. <laughs> but now we're going to talk about a heavyweight champion of its own, the best little whorehouse in Texas. 
chick, chicken ranch where a lonely girl could have a chance and a homely boy could find romance at the chick, chick, chicken ranch. The sheriff and Miss Mona for years had been red hot lovers and real good friends, but trouble snowballed like an avalanche at the chick, chick, chicken ranch. Of sorts, a self-righteous crusading fanatic got on TV like you wouldn't believe and pointed a finger right at it, exposing Miss Mona, accusing the sheriff. Then it rose to a roar from a whimper. It got all out of hand. A fit hit the fan when Thorpe stirred up everyone's temper. The chick, 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 chicken ranch has been recouped into song and dance, and I know you wouldn't want to miss the chance to come to the chicken ranch. It's foot stomping, rug romping, sexy, good fun. Come on Little Texas Chicken Ranch. Go on, partner. Y'all come back now, you hear? Goody. Ready? Yeah. Okay. This is for my toe and your <laughs> leg. Okay. Y'all come back now, you hear? The answer to everyone's favorite trivia question. What film dethroned E.T. the Extraterrestrial after several weeks at number one in the box office? Spoiler, it was not Star Trek II or Blade Runner. And you know what? In some places, it was called the best little in Texas. We'll get to that in a sec. This is directed by Colin Higgins, written by Colin Higgins, on the play by Larry L. King and Peter Masterson, starring Burt Reynolds, Dolly Parton, Dom DeLuise, Jim Neighbors, and Charles Durning. A town sheriff and regular patron of historical whorehouse fights to keep or <clears throat> patron of a historical whorehouse fights to keep it running when a television reporter targets it as the devil's playhouse. So Higgins, this guy who directs it, this is the uh, writer of Harold and Maud and Silver Streak, wrote directed foul play. This is his follow-up to 9 to 5, which was huge for Dolly, huge for him. It's here. Uh, Burt Reynolds, uh, follow, you're following Sharky's machine machine and paternity. Uh, and, well, yeah, you're following Sharky's machine and uh, paternity and the Cannonball Run was the previous year for him. He had a huge year the previous year. And uh, he has best friends with Goalie Hawn that next year, as well as Stroker Ace and the man who loved women and smoking the bandit three. So this guy is just in this, I'm I'm doing 80 movies a year type thing. People are going to see my movies. Dolly Parton. This is her first film since nine to five. Her next film after this would be the disaster. That is rhinestone with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, best little whorehouse in Texas was pitched with Shirley MacLaine and Diane Cannon in mind for roles. And Willie Nelson was supposed to be, uh, the, opposite Dolly Parton um, but uh, as well as Mickey Rooney was supposed to be in the Charles Durning role but Burt Reynolds was like why don't you get Durning so because he can sing and people don't know that or something like that but yeah (laughs) Durning would get a nomination for best supporting actor Parton and the film uh, were nominated for Golden Globes that old racist uh, award show that we used to have so um Scott, the best little horror house in Texas. I enjoyed this one as a you know it's 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 an entire you know it's the kind of you know forty years ago or hell even twenty years ago it it felt like okay this is what a hit movie looks like. You have two beloved superstars as the sympathetic heroes. You have a beloved comedian as the 
comic bad guy and you have a raunchy but wholesome premise i mean yes it involves prostitutes and and you know whorehouses and brothels but it's a pretty clean picture i would say it's certainly sex again in skewed way then and now it certainly doesn't demonize those who work in the sex industry and or those who you know pay for sex it's it certainly comes down on the idea of you know these places should still have a place as long as they're safe and regulated and all that jazz Mm -hmm. that they should be allowed to operate you have dolly parton and and uh burt reynolds very much cast a type and it's a musical and the songs are catchy yeah, it is kind of stage bound, but that's going to happen when you're based on a play. Uh, they do try to get outside when they can, but it feels like a big movie. Yeah, especially back then. I mean, depending on who you ask, it cost anywhere between twenty one and thirty five million dollars. I'm guessing the answer is somewhere in between. Because I mean, God, you know, the Return of the Jedi barely cost thirty five million dollars. And it was a, you know, it opened with a, you know, if I can skip ahead a little bit, it opened with like $11.8 million on its opening weekend. Yeah. That was the sixth one, two, three. Well, that was just ahead of ET with 11.83 million. And it was just behind Star Trek, the motion picture with 11.9, Rocky three also this summer with 12.4. Uh, Superman 2, when it finally came out in North America, mm-hmm. with 14.1 the previous year in June of 81. And the current record, record holder from a month ago, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, with $14.3 million. Yeah. Uh, two things to note about that. First of all, you had three of the one, two, three, four, five, six, excuse me, four of the six biggest openings of all time this summer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unless I did that wrong. No, no, I didn't. And by default, the best little horse in Texas has the biggest opening weekend for a non-sequel and for something that isn't like an action fantasy, whatever. It's R-rated too, right? Yeah. So. Is it R-rated? Yeah, I think it's R-rated. I should have looked that up, and I apologize for not doing so. Yeah. I have to assume so just because of the subject matter. Right. But again, it's, it didn't strike me as a particularly vulgar picture. No, it's it's not. Um, That's the surprising thing. You would think they could get away with PG-13. Um, well, it's nineteen eighty-two. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it's nineteen eighty-two. I'm sure if it were so. re-rated, it'd probably get a PG thirteen. Yeah, it is rated R. Um, and yeah, it just it's 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 I enjoy, I very much enjoyed watching it just because hey, it's a fun mm-hmm. movie. You know, everything about it is enjoyable. Everybody is comfortable. You know, they're very as I said, they're everyone's you know cast a type. You know, it's 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 a prototypical you know Burt Reynolds star vehicle. It's Dolly Parton. You know, basically, here's why I'm a star. Well, um, it's this time where like people like Bert and Dolly. I'm going to see that. I don't give a yeah. shit what it's about. It's Bert and Dolly. Like, yeah, that was a huge combo. And they know Dom DeLuise from being in like Cannibal Run with Bert Reynolds and other yeah. like they were a little bit of a tandem. And like that's what people will go see a movie. Like, who cares? I get to see Bert doing his thing. Dolly Parton's a goddess at this. Like, you know, like I people love Dolly Parton now. Yeah, that she's old and stuff. There was a <laughs> there was a good chunk in like. The 90s where she won't cool no more, but like 70s, 80s, she was like one of the top stars you could get on the planet. Like, yeah, I mean, so, she was a huge celebrity, justifiably, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Um, and this is what a, you know, an event movie for adults, basically, is what this is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I know the film got mixed positive reviews when it came out, but both in terms of its surface level value and in terms of its educational value, I found it fascinating. Mm hmm. And of course, there's a huge twist at the end where the movie's over, 
there's a, a somewhat downbeat, but not super downbeat ending. The, the whorehouse is forced to close, mm-hmm. but the sheriff basically convinces Dolly uh, Dolly Parton's character to basically run away with him to Congress, yeah. for lack of a better word. And she breaks out into song. And what song does she sing? She sings, I Will Always Love You, Her, which charted at number one again because of this movie. But it's a repurposed one to fit the movie. Yes. Which, of course, would be remade exactly 10 years later. Well, 10 and a half. Uh, with Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard. Yeah. Um, so like I, that took me by surprise watching. I was like, wait, that's not from this play. And then I yeah, found I wasn't out sure. they threw two Dolly Parton songs into this movie. Uh, the one sneaking around is a Dolly Parton song. They removed five songs from it. Um, and she had two other songs for this movie that were cut, uh, where the stallions run, it got restored in the television version of the film. So the, you know how we talk about that. <laughs> and there's an extra song it was yeah so this was kind of you know when not all the songs make it when you go to the film that it's a common thing that happens but uh yeah i will always love you shows up and i was like whoa and if it, it made the movie feel more more grand than it was at the time oh yeah because it's a mel- i mean it's a it's a it's a very powerful relatively speaking it's a powerful that's not always stopped you in your song. tracks yeah it always yeah. stopped you in your tracks that's how good and timeless that song yeah, whether it's whitney or dolly yeah, yeah. whitney or dolly <laughs> and frankly i would say the same thing about the bodyguard which is a all due respect a very slight picture that i mm-hmm. think you know is elevated in terms of alleged prestige by that song yeah the other thing is it's a good example of how it's a movie that has no real political definition because I mean, on one hand, it's snobs versus snobs, you know, very 80s in that sense. Mm-hmm. And it certainly, you know, it lionizes the rule breaking cop and demonizes the muckraking journalist. Right. But at the end of the day, the movie is basically saying, you know, prostitution is cool and stop being a prude about it. Which is funny. We're going to talk about this same subject next week. When we talk Ron Howard's Night Shift. Uh, Right, 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 right. right. Same dramas, same things coming up. Um, But yeah, it's it's kind of funny. America was into the horrors at this time in July of 82. Yeah, the 80s were a weird time. Old school and new school. But um, yeah, it's it's weird how delicate it it takes that. Um, And I know... I know we, we nowadays we all oh, we're all about repurposing properties, reimagining, reboot, blah 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 blah. But I think the best little horror house in Texas would make for a great HBO Max type series. Like it has all the making of fleshing out characters, that town drama, nudity, and sex because they love it. <laughs> but I yeah, could it doesn't see, need to be a series. Just make it a two and a half hour movie. They could, but I mean, if they wanted to make, make a drama, add to the mythology, like you know, they could this. This could fit a series. Like it yeah. really could make a series um, about the whore, keeping the quiet about the whore, fighting for the whorehouse to stay there. The sheriff being involved in hiding it. Like there's so much good, like juicy television type drama in there. They'll put it on it Paramount could- Plus and the best little whorehouse in Texas, a Yellowstone story. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yellowstone. <laughs> The best little whorehouse in Yellowstone. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I was like, I was thinking, I'm like, I don't think it was often, but I'm like, I normally I'm like, just make a fucking movie. But like this, I was like, 
I could see this working like in a big love that type of fashion. Like, yeah, it could work. It could work. Um, but you know, I I, I don't know. Um, it, it wouldn't be a musical anymore. Make it a dramatized version, but I could I can see it working. Um, but yeah, uh, this one like the title was a is a is a issue because there were <laughs> uh, different markets knew this movie differently. There was um, the word whore. Apparently, they don't like it on TV. They don't like it on their marquee. Uh, they don't like it on the radio. So uh, many people saw this as the best little cat house in Texas. Uh, then there was more conservative markets had it. Uh, this The word whore was censored as too obscene. There were also ones that would uh, click. The, the announcer would be like, the best little in Texas. That's how they would, they would announce it. Too obscene, apparently. Sometimes Parton would refer to it as the best little chicken house in Texas. Oh, okay. And, well, you know, that's not wrong. <laughs> that's and not in a wrong. Way, it's an early example of, again, how media-specific controversies don't always affect mainstream interest because mm-hmm. this film is a huge hit. Yeah. I mean, it had one of the biggest opening weekends of all time. Yeah. Um. You know, and during a summer where it was sort of, you were getting sort of a sneak preview of what would come with, you know, eventually it'd be the summer of 89 when everything would go crazy. Well, think also, think also, think of the teens then being like, whoa, Dolly Parton in a whorehouse movie? Woo-hoo. I'm sneaking into that. Or I'm, and you know, did. like, and they'd be like, oh, that's, well, some nice lingerie, but <laughs> that's all you're getting. We should have just seen E.T. again. <laughs> well, you bought the or ticket for it. in love. Um, Young Doctors in Love actually showed the boobies. <laughs> but if you want whores and boobies, Night Shift next week, kids. Indeed. Can't next wait. Uh, um, this was the uh, this house was later used as the house from Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. So if it looked familiar to you horror nuts. I thought it fi- looked familiar. The Firefly family owned it around the same time the movie took place, apparently. But yeah, this yeah. film has one thousand fewer corpses. Yes, one thousand. Uh, yeah, no, this is a fun movie. Uh, this is when hillbilly stuff was kind of in vogue too. With like Dukes of Hazard was big on TV. Um, but yeah, I mean, and this is a perfect role for Burt Reynolds and his star power, Dolly and hers. Um, it works. It's it's fun. I I don't think it's great by any means, but it's good. It's good enough, and I think it absolutely delivered for uh, viewers paying audiences in 1982. Like laughs, drama, songs. Everybody felt good after this. It just oh, I had a word horror in the title. Well, obviously that helped. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Because again, I I think. If they actually called it the best little click click in Texas, it wouldn't have done as well. Well, the thing is, I don't think it, it's part. It adds to sort of the ridiculous, the comedy of it calling yes, of it course. that. You know, like it's not like it's like, oh, the best little whorehouse in Texas. It's the best little whorehouse in Texas. Like you know, like, and this is it. By the way, this you know, as I as I noted, it it topped ET and ET's seventh weekend. They're both Universal Pictures. Yeah. Wow. So Universal's having a good summer. Universal? Well, let's check on that summer, Scott. So let's move on to the box office here. Okay. So Spoiler. 
Uh, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas earned $11.874 million on 1,400 screens for a whopping $8,481 per theater. Now, it was number one behind or ahead of E.T., the extraterrestrial, which earned another $11.255 million. Scott, Scott, before it goes down and leaves us to the number two spot to E.T., I want to say, and I <laughs> will always love you. I want to be back number one. Till next week. week. Yep. Yeah. All right. I think. I, haven't, I think so. Yeah. All right. Um, and I, I should have done this beforehand, but I, I wonder how many of E.T.'s non-opening weekends are actually bigger than the various opening weekends. Someone needs to make a compilation of our songs, our duets we do on these. <laughs> This is the first one, I think. We've had a couple. Oh, no, Annie got us. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah holy shit. I mean, you're, I, you know, I should have, you know, beforehand. Uh, you know, ETO was 11.8, then weekend two does 12.6, 13.7. So basically, the biggest op- biggest weekends, opening or otherwise, mm-hmm. are almost entirely ET. But I will say the, the best little whorehouse in Texas, though, barely gets by ET. Like, it's, yeah. not, it's a close race. This is like Titan- Titanic yes. and Man in the Iron Mask. <laughs> yeah. That's actually an excellent comparison. That's where that's what it looks like. Um, and it, uh, was Whorehouse the biggest opening for a musical film? Did you? Oh yeah, it had to be because again, yeah. it was the biggest opening weekend behind. And it was R rated. That's crazy. Like yeah, R-rated. Star Trek Two, Superman Two, Rocky Three, and Star yeah. Trek One. Yeah. Which again, when people talk about you know Star Wars versus Star Trek, I mean, the first two Star Wars films or Star Trek films broke the opening weekend record. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Return of the Jedi did, but that was the first one. That was the first Star Wars movie to open wide. Yeah, because even Empire, you know, went slow, really slow, especially right. by, modern, by modern standards. That must have been unbearable if you didn't live in New York or LA. Yeah. Um. All right. Anyway, number three, uh, I think. Number two, number three, Young yeah. Doctors in Love. Oh, by the way, ET crossed 150 million dollars domestic and its seventh Ooh. weekend. Um, Young Doctors in Love would make 3.1 million, a drop of 26%, bringing its 10 day total to 9.9 million. That's fine. Um, let me close these windows really quick. Hold on a second. I'm going to open a couple more. Young Doctors in Love would eventually finish with $30.7 million domestic. So it's going to stick around for a while. Yeah. Because it's not going anywhere. Um, the world, according to Garp, opened in 357 theaters this weekend with a decent 2.9 million opening. That's an $8,129 uh, per screen average, just below Best Little Ore House. Um, the world, according to Garp, would have leg out to 29.7 million, which is more than good enough. Uh, it would never play in more than 560 theaters. For that matter, Young Doctors in Love would never play in more than 796 theaters. Hmm. So this is before the, you know, every big movie goes 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 screens. Right. In fifth place, Raider of the Lost Ark. In I've its seen second that. week of its, <laughs> in its $2.8 million second weekend, dropping just 35%. It has earned $9.5 million total in its reissue, uh, bringing its total to around 220 I think. Hmm. Let me see. Uh, it would eventually earn twenty-one million. Yeah, about yeah, two hundred twenty. Yeah, about two hundred twenty million because it did two twelve last summer, and then uh, Rocky Three will not die. No, uh, I you know I'll have to look this. Maybe we'll do this toward the end of the summer, but. I got to imagine Rocky Three had the best legs of anything other than ET this summer. It's got a soundtrack 
selling that's hot true. now too. Yeah. Um, $2.8 million It's ninth weekend for a 22% drop. It's already, it's still playing in 1,231 theaters, a drop of just nine theaters for a $91.3 million total. Hmm. A Tron uh, dropped 39%, which isn't great for 1982 yeah. uh, for a $2.2 million weekend. Uh, losing 270 theaters for an 842 count, 15.4 million after 17 days. Poltergeist, another leggy picture. Very leggy. Yeah, which to be fair, there you know, the thing came and went. There just aren't a lot of huge horror films, mm-hmm. um, unless I'm forgetting one. 2.1 million, nine or 20 percent drop. 51.2 domestic so far. Number ninth place, six pack, a movie I've already totally forgotten about. Um, two million dollars rising up 5.3 percent. It went from it, it wasn't in the top 10 last week, I think. Correct, it was yeah, in 11th we- place. It added 177 screens for a 4.978 10 day total. Uh, it would eventually finish with a 20.2. Oh, that's right, that's the, the, the Kenny Rogers, no, Kenny Rogers, yeah. yeah. Let's see. Uh, Annie continuing to bomb. Mm-hmm. All due respect. $1.68 million on weekend 10. Of course, it had been in limited release for the first five weekends, I think, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, 770 theaters, $39.4 million. Firefox stuck around at number 11, $1.7 million, 38.5 total. Star Trek 2 is at number 12, falling out of the top 10 mm-hmm. in weekend 8 with $66.8 million total with a $1.6 million uh, weekend. And that's pretty. Oh, oh, Zap did open in 200 mm-hmm. theaters yeah. with a $4,117 per screen average, giving it $823,548 in its opening weekend, courtesy of Embassy Pictures. Yeah. Midsummer Night Sex Comedy also dropped from the top 10. Yes. Uh, also, point out um, Poltergeist and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan opened the same weekend. Poltergeist yes. is still in the 10. Yeah. I mean, comparatively speaking, Star Trek is a fan-driven, front-loaded picture. Yeah. Well, also now you have like you have ET, yes. you have Raiders, you have Tron, that are probably taken from people's Star Trek curiosity. Absolutely, and it's it's you know obviously we've talked a lot about Star Trek too for obvious reasons, but you know it's a good example of you know the the reason that film was a hit, the reason that franchise survived, is because it was cheap. Yeah. And yes, it was because they retrofitted a lot of the sets, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, in today's Hollywood, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture would make 82 million domestic on like a $50 million budget. Like, oh, this time we're going to spend another $50 million. And right. you're shocked when it only makes like 75. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. And Firefox, like once there's another adult driven picture up there, the best little whorehouse, it's gone. Yeah. Like everybody, you can tell the direction people went with that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to... Again, I, I don't have the math in front of me, and maybe I should, but I do wonder to what extent, you know, we're still seeing a situation where these pictures still do most of their business in the first six or seven weekends, which I'd argue is still the case today, even mm-hmm. with all but the leggiest of leggy releases. So, you know, Firefox, for example, that did yeah. 38.5 divided by 46.7. Yeah, that did 82% of its money by the end of its sixth weekend. And that's actually pretty leggy by today's standards, but yeah. that was probably pretty normal back then. Right. Um, yeah. Which I guess my point is that the the super leggy likes of E.T., Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, 
at you know Forrest Gump eventually and you know Jurassic Park. Those weren't that common even in the good old days. Yeah. Um, and I'll stop there because I'm rambling. Gotcha. No. Um, and to, to Annie here. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you. Tomorrow, you're almost out of the top ten. So, bye. Annie. That's okay. Yeah, I'll, but, I'll let that one go. Yeah, but uh, yeah, um, no, it's a uh, just yeah, interesting stuff to look at and reflect on. Like what today? Like there's there's so many there's similarities to today. There's interesting things you didn't realize. There's movies that were like solid hits or had solid legs that you're like, oh, we, we don't talk about. Hey, this. guess what's still in the top fifteen? The Sword and the Sorcerer. Exactly. <laughs> Making nine hundred. Fifty-six million dollars on three hundred and sixty-eight theaters for a thirty-four million dollar fourteen weekend total. Speaking of, we'll plug our Patreon for a bit uh, as uh, there's a Patreonic up give there. Give us money. Or, give us money. Money. All you gotta do. All we have to do is get to twenty dollars, and we're gonna add an episode where we talk Sword and the Sorcerer and Porky's, since they've been brought up so much on this show. And I'm sure you think Porky's is better than Zapped, right? It's gotta be. Don't make me watch Porky's for nothing. Yes. So. Uh, join the or if you just want to just contribute, I I'm not I'm weird with those things. I put one up so just for those who like to contribute, I love the listeners that uh, I love you listening more than. So if you're a listener and you pay zero, I like you more than someone who just dumped a dollar in for whatever. I want you to hear this stuff. I don't know. So whatever, if you want to chip in, that's great. Patreon.com/slash Brandon Peters Show. Look in there. I'm I'm new to that, so if it's not as mobile or awesome as a lot of other better shows you know of, patrons, it's okay. Uh, but yeah, Scott, that'll do it for this week. Again, always fun uh, for July 23 through 25. Uh, nice ET not in the top 10. It will drop one more time. Who will defeat it? Who I know who it is, but do you know? Yes, you'll look it up and find out. But uh, until then, let people know where they can uh, <laughs> let people know where they can keep up with you. Uh, Forbes.com, the ticket booth. Uh, I'm at Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson, and that's about it. All right. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Tune in next week as Scott and I start working the night shift with Chuck Norris and Matt Dillon. But who will be the last American virgin? All that and more. Working on a night shift. (laughs) That's some work. Oh, all that and more as well as well as we say farewell to July and hello to August in the summer of 1982 at 40. Or round in act three. Turn in that corner. The summer of 82 at 40. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. 
For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.